Matthew chapter 18, as we jump into the text this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 21 uh, through 35. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. As we, uh, as we met to, to, uh, to break out these texts a while back, uh, I saw this text was coming up uh, in, in our, our line of sight, and I told uh, pastors Ben and Wes uh, that I wanted to specifically preach this text. Um, and the reason why is uh, almost 20 years ago, January of 2001, I preached my very first sermon, and it was on this text. And I told them that I wanted a chance to redeem myself. Uh, I, long story short, but I had prepared myself for that sermon, had all my notes together. I felt so good about it. I got up there and preached all of it in seven and a half minutes. Hopefully this morning it will be a little longer than that. So Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. If you found your way there, let's stand there in honor of the reading of God's word. And then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So this fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And went and threw him in the prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You can be seated. Wow, we have taken quite a journey uh, through the last couple of chapters here in the book of Matthew and really seen uh, a lot of different things that are so applicable to our everyday life as Christians. Uh, I was just talking with Pastor Ben this morning you know, there are so many of these passages of Scripture that we've probably heard sermons on from different times in our life. You know, the sermon on uh, asking for forgiveness from a brother there that we looked at last week in verses 15 through 20. Uh, the sermon uh, on the temple text, the sermon on the disciples arguing about their rank in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the, the sermon on the 99 and the one where the shepherd goes out to pursue that one. And even this text this morning about forgiveness, or oftentimes we hear these texts preached Um, kind of isolated out of the context of where they are. Somebody might preach one of those passages and then sometime later preach another one and then sometime later preach another one. Uh, But as we've been studying through these together, uh, just consecutively, verse after verse, story after story, 
insight after insight, what we see here is this broad arching theme that Jesus is helping us to understand, that all of these things are all implicitly tied together. And so we've talked about this idea of stumbling blocks and and caring for one another and really this whole idea of of unity and reconciliation that God desires to see amongst those who are Christians. That as believers in Christ, we are to care for one another. We're to love one another. We're to pursue what is best for one another. And we are to be willing to even put aside our own desires and our own selfishness and our own thoughts, even about how that is to be done in order to pursue unity inside the kingdom. So what we find this morning is this passage here specifically on the idea of forgiveness. And really there's an overarching theme in this whole story. This overarching theme is the idea is that forgiveness is necessary. There is no option when it comes to the idea of forgiveness. It is a, you could almost say forgiveness is mandated. For the believer in Jesus Christ, forgiveness is mandated. And so even before we begin this morning, I think it's important to kind of lay down the understanding of what we're going to talk about today is specifically talking about the lives of people inside the confines of the Christian community and how that's to be demonstrated. And the reason I say that is because people who are outside of Christ cannot ever truly forgive because they don't know what true forgiveness looks like. They've never experienced true forgiveness from the heart of Jesus. And this is the reason why you'll find so many people struggle. They'll say, oh, I forgive them, but I won't forget it. Or or they'll say that they forgive somebody, but then later on in an argument, it comes back up again. Well, remember what you did to me in this moment or this situation. Why? Because they can never move past it. It's always still there in the recesses of their heart and the recesses of their mind. But what Jesus is helping us to understand is that in the life of the Christian, we can learn to practice true and genuine and complete forgiveness. And not only must we learn to practice that, we must live it out. So the first thing I want you to notice in this text is that forgiveness is ongoing. And what I mean by ongoing is that every one of us in this room, we're going to have multiple opportunities to practice forgiveness throughout the course of our life. In fact, we're probably going to have multiple opportunities to practice forgiveness every single day. It is an ongoing thing in the life. If you are a human being and you're breathing and you're living, you are going to have opportunities to practice forgiveness. It's going to be with your spouse. It's going to be with your coworkers. It's going to be with your children. It's going to be with that guy who cuts you off when you're getting on the interstate. You're going to have plenty of opportunities to practice forgiveness. So Peter comes to Jesus here in this moment. Now, what's interesting about Peter, we've talked about this over and over again, is how sometimes Peter really seems to get what's happening, and other times Peter really doesn't seem to have a clue what's happening around him. And in this moment, we kind of have a little bit of both. Because Peter has recognized what Jesus has been describing here. This idea of reconciliation, this idea of of, of going to your brother, if somebody sins against you, going to him and and calling him to repentance. And so uh, Peter steps up at this moment, and again, probably as he often is, speaking on behalf of the other disciples. Uh, They may have conferred together about this, and and he asked this provoking question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So Peter has the right idea here. This is exactly where Jesus is trying to direct their thoughts and their minds. If somebody sins against you, how should we practice forgiveness towards them? So Peter asked the logical question. If this happens, if somebody sins against me and they come 
and they ask for forgiveness, how often should I forgive them? Now, this might seem as an unusual question to us, but what we find out in Peter really kind of answers his own question before Jesus gives the answer, because he says, should I do it up to seven times? Now, we might look at that and scratch our head and say, well, why the number seven? And in fact, as Peter said these words to Jesus, he was most likely expecting accolades from Jesus. And the reason was, was that rabbinical tradition at that time only required you to forgive someone three times. In fact, one of the rabbis had written this, if a man commits an offense once, then forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, then forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, then forgive him. The fourth time, you do not forgive. So in the common minds of the people, if somebody came to you and committed a sin against you, and they said, I'm sorry I did that, you were supposed to forgive them. And they could do that same thing a second time, and you would forgive them. And then third time, and then forgive them. But if they did it to you a fourth time, then you were not obligated to forgive them. So in Peter's mind, what he has done, he's taken those three times of forgiveness. He's doubled it, right? So that makes it even more better and then adds another one on top of it. So you have seven times. He says, surely, Jesus, this is more than enough, right? I've doubled the expectation, added one more on top, just as kind of the the little cream on the top there. Surely, Jesus, let me hear your praise, Jesus. I want you to hear say, Peter, wow, what generosity you have. Peter, wow, what, what an exceptional human being you are, that you would be willing to go above and beyond seven times to forgive somebody. Because Peter realized this was going to happen, right? We're human beings. We're going to always be having opportunities to forgive, always having opportunities where people are sinning against us. Not always maliciously, but sometimes. Because listen, brothers and sisters, forgiveness is not... We don't forgive somebody just because they accidentally did something and asked for our forgiveness. This is the whole concept of the idea of true forgiveness, is that even if somebody does something maliciously against us, purposefully, maliciously, hatefully against us, and they come to us and ask for forgiveness, we're to forgive them. That is the power of forgiveness. Okay? Now let's think about this. So here's Peter's expectation, right? He's waiting. He's waiting for this praise from Jesus. And notice what Jesus says to him. Because we see that forgiveness is ongoing, but what Jesus wants to convey to these disciples is, secondly, is that forgiveness has no limits. Just look at what Jesus says there in verse 22. He says, I say to you, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, depending on the translation, some, depending upon which uh, text that they're using, it could be translated as actually 77 times or 70 times 7, which would be 490 times. And regardless of the number, Jesus was not trying to set a specific number here. What he was trying to set here was a level uh, of, of, of forgiveness that you would never count to. He was trying to say the number of times you should forgive is so high that you would never even attempt to try to count that high or to keep track of it. Because it's not about setting a certain number of times that we're to forgive, but actually to eliminate the whole idea of setting a limit because true forgiveness should have no limits. So Jesus is saying every time a brother sins against you, you don't just do it three times. You don't just do it four times. You don't even do it seven times, Peter. But you do it 70 times seven. An unlimited amount of forgiveness should be available from the heart of the Christian. 
One commentator said, forgiveness is not so much an act as an attitude. And the disposition or willingness to forgive is to be limitless. So we have to set it in our minds that we are going to be people who forgive. That doesn't make it easy. Jesus here is not saying that forgiveness is always easy. I mean, because listen, Jesus was perfect, we are not. We struggle with our sinfulness. We struggle with our pride. And most oftentimes, when we have been sinned against, it's our pride that's on the inside that does not make us want to forgive somebody else because they have hurt us. They've sinned against us. They've done something that's caused us grief or pain or sorrow or whatever it may be. But we have to make that decision that, you know what? I am going to forgive. And then the same thing may happen. And then we have to make a decision to say, you know what? I'm going to forgive. And Jesus is going to paint a clear picture of this in just a moment. So I don't want to get too far ahead, but he's going to help us understand why this is to be so. Because if you're to sit in a room of average people, if you were just to poll the average American on how many times you should forgive somebody, you might be lucky to say that they would say that you should forgive somebody one time. But if somebody continues to sin against you or continues to hurt you, continues to do those things, every person would say that it's outside of the Christian community would say, well, at a certain point, you just stop, right? Obviously, they're not genuinely sorry. Obviously, they're not repentant. Obviously, it's not really true. But true forgiveness has no limits. Albert Barnes said to forgive is to treat as though the offense was not committed, to declare that we will not harbor malice or treat unkindly, but that the matter shall be buried and forgotten. Now think about that. To forgive is to treat as though the offense was not committed. That means when that person sins against you and they ask for forgiveness, you're saying, not only am I going to forgive you, but it's like you never even did it. I'm not going to think about it anymore. I'm not going to bring it back up in conversation. I'm not going to harbor it in my heart. It's gone, and it's buried, and it's completely forgotten. And that's what true forgiveness is. Now, in order to illustrate this, because just as we struggle with this as human beings, the disciples were going to struggle with this. They wanted to struggle with how to understand what true forgiveness looks like. They're going to struggle with how to understand how to apply this, right? Because they've always grown up under this assumption. You forgive somebody three times, and the fourth time you write them off. You forgive somebody three times, the fourth time you're no longer obligated to do that any longer. But Jesus says now we're removing all the limits on forgiveness. And so he gives this profound illustration, this parable of a king who's going to settle his accounts. And he says there that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, to understand this, because when you begin to talk about the amount of money owed, the idea here is not so much slaves as in someone who is being forced to work, but these are servants of this master who have been given responsibility of the king's money. They've been given responsibility. And this is how that this first servant ends up with such a great debt. He has been given responsibility and has not heeded his responsibility well. So it says this king now begins to settle the accounts with those who work for him. And when he began to settle him, he has this one servant who comes in who owes him 10,000 talents. Now we read that today and we don't really think a lot about that, but 
10,000 talents. Now, it's impossible, it's impossible to set an exact figure of what that would be in today's money just because of the fluctuations of, of values of materials and things over the years. But, but every commentator agrees that 10,000 talents today would be an amount in the neighborhood of, of probably tens of millions of dollars. So this servant owed an impossible debt. This was an amount that was so vastly large that even if this servant were to work every single day of his life, not, not, to not keep any money for food, to not keep any money for shelter, to not keep any money for any kind of basic necessities, he works every single day of his life, saves every single bit of his money, he would never be able to pay off this debt in his lifetime. This is an insurmountable debt. And now he has been called to give an account. Can you imagine what this servant thought when he realized that now he was going to be called to give an account of all the money that he owed? And verse 25 tells us, it says, but since he did not have the means to repay, it was impossible. There was no way that he could repay this debt. It says his Lord commanded that he be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now as often the fact in Jesus' parables, there is a spiritual allegory that we find here. Because this is not just talking about an earthly servant with a slave who owes money and the, 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 the confines of, of settling this debt. But what we find here is this is a story of each one of us in this room this morning. And the Master is our Lord, our God, and our Heavenly Father. And there is coming a time for each and every person when the accounts will be settled. R.G. Lee used to preach a message entitled, Payday Someday. Because there's coming a day when all of us will be called to give an account of our lives and the things in our life. There is a debt that must be paid. So this master is our Lord and our Father. And we are the servant. And when that time of accounting is given, what we find is that each one of us as these servants, we have an insurmountable debt that we cannot pay. And that is our sin. Our sin is grievous before a holy God. Our sin is great before a holy God. And as this servant's debt was really almost immeasurable or uncountable, so is our sin debt before God. We probably couldn't count the times that we sinned yesterday, let alone the times that we have sinned in the entirety of our lives. And that debt weighs heavy on us and over our heads when we understand the truthfulness and the holiness and the majesty of who God is. And as this servant realized that he did not have the means to repay, brothers and sisters, we stand before God as this servant did, empty-handed, because we have nothing that we can offer before him. There's no amount of work that this servant could have done to ever begin to repay his debt, and there's no amount of work that you and I can do to overcome the debt of sin that we owe before a holy God. There's no amount of good deeds. There's no amount of money that we can give. There's no amount of service to the church. There's nothing that we can ever do to overcome this debt before God. This servant had no hope. It was over. It was done. 
Not only for him, but for his entire family. This just shows you the spread and the power of sin, that his debt was affecting everyone else around him. But notice what he did. Verse 26. It says, So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Now it's interesting here because this servant begs for forgiveness. He he lays down, it's a a picture of humility in the scripture whenever somebody would prostrate themselves before somebody else. Not only does he prostrate himself, but he cries out. He's laying on the ground face down before his master saying, have patience with me, have mercy upon me, have have grace upon me, and, and I will repay him. Now, the crying out for mercy and grace is totally understandable, right? Because he realizes what's about to happen. He's about to be carried off and thrown into prison. His wife and his children are about to be sold off into slavery to somebody else in order that this debt may be paid. And this man realizes that he has nothing else that he can do but to fall down on the face before his master and beg for his mercy. But it's interesting that he says, I will repay you everything. Because he couldn't. It was impossible. He was making a promise that he could not keep. But it was a moment of desperation. It was a moment of pleading with the master. And brothers and sisters, this is where each person must come in their life. They must come to a moment where they realize the enormity of their sin, the impossibility of their situation, and they must fall upon their face before the master. They must fall upon their face before a holy and a righteous and a just God and say, God, I have nothing to offer, but what little I have, it's yours. This man was saying, I I can never repay this debt, but I'll be willing to do whatever it takes. I'll work the rest of my life chipping away at it bit by bit just to do, just to show you. We have nothing to offer God, but we say, God, what I have is myself and I give myself to you. I offer you everything about it. You take control of my life. You take control of everything about who I am. I give my life to you. It's what this man is doing. It's what each of us must do. We must give our lives to him. Look at verse 27. It says, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now, now just imagine this for a moment. This servant owes his master 10,000 talents. So consider this today. I want you to imagine this a moment, that, that, that somebody owes you $10 million. $10 million that they owe you. And they come to you and they say, I can't repay it. I have no money. I have nothing to give. I have nothing to offer you, but I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Would you please forgive me? Now, we might say, depending upon the person, depending upon the situation, we might say, okay, listen, I forgive you, brother. But now we'll work up a system of where I'm going to garnish your wages for the next hundred million years. And we'll get back a little bit of that piecemeal throughout time. 
right? You can say, I forgive you, brother. I forgive you that you made a bad judgment call. You, you, you made a bad decision. You know, something went wrong and we understand that. But here, let's work out a situation for this to be repaid. But the master of this servant is not only moved with compassion that he allows this man to go free and forgives him, but he totally releases him and frees him from the debt. He wipes the slate completely clean. I love that Jesus here uses this language because he says that the Lord of the slave felt compassion. Now, I want you to think back earlier in these chapters in the book of Matthew. Where have we seen that phraseology over and over again? Remember, Jesus having compassion on the multitudes. Jesus having compassion upon them. Jesus being moved with compassion. Brothers and sisters, this is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. That when you and I were immeasurably guilty of our sin, with a debt so heavy upon us that we had nothing that we can do, that if we go before our Lord and Savior and we say, Father, I have nothing to offer. I give everything over to you. Please forgive me. That not only does he forgive us, but he wipes the slate clean. Our sin debt is totally paid. Our sin debt is totally forgiven. Now the master here, he was not obligated to forgive. He owed this servant nothing. But true forgiveness has no limits. He was moved with compassion. It was his graciousness and his love that caused him to forgive this servant. And he totally forgave him with no strings attached. He didn't say, I'll forgive you now, we'll work it out later. He didn't say, I'll forgive you now, but we'll have to bring it back up the next time you come to see me. He totally released him and forgave him of that debt. So this is what true forgiveness looks like. This is what compassion looks like. Now, in order for Jesus to help the disciples understand what forgiveness looks like in the life of a believer, first he had to set down this groundwork. This is the foundation. This first servant and what he experienced from the master is the groundwork of what you and I, what the disciples had experienced from the hand of a loving and a merciful and a gracious God. And so now Jesus is going to give an extreme contrast because now he's going to show what people should not do when they have experienced such great love and mercy and grace. And by showing that extreme contrast, he's teaching us how we should behave. This is oftentimes the best way to learn is to not show by example, but to show by the opposite. He's going to paint the picture of what the opposite perspective looks like so that it will be even more clear how we should behave as Christians. Now, put yourself in this first servant's shoes, right? He's been forgiven of this immense amount of debt, a debt that could never be paid in his lifetime, a debt that he could have never worked off, a debt that was going to send him and his family into lifelong slavery and imprisonment. He has been totally and completely forgiven. How would you think that this servant would act? Well, Jesus tells us. Verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, remember this first 
servant owed his master what could be reconciled to amount of about $10 million in today's money. This second servant owed the first servant 100 denarii. Now, denarii was a silver coin, a Roman coin. It was worth about 16 cents. It was considered a day's wages. Every day, you would get paid one of these coins. It was worth about 16 cents. So the amount owed was an insignificant amount in comparison to what this first slave had owed. This man owed him such a tiny, inconsequential amount. And what does he do? He goes to this other slave and he not only seizes him, he says he begins to choke him. So he doesn't only just go and have a confrontation with him. He grabs him by the neck and begins to choke him and say, pay me back what you owe me. Give me the money that I deserve. And now we notice a familiar occurrence. His fellow slave falls to the ground and begins to plead with him saying, have patience with me. And I will repay you. Same exact thing. Now in this moment, wouldn't you think that this first slave would realize, well, wait a minute, what in the world am I doing? Right? Here, here he's seen the exact thing happen. And now the difference is, is that that's this second man, he could have repaid his debt. It was so small, inconsequential, that it might have taken him a little longer. But he actually could have repaid his debt to this first servant. But here he is pleading with mercy, pleading with forgiveness, fall again face down on the ground, pleading with this fellow slave. But it says, but he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. Brothers and sisters, to whom much is given, much is required. The sin of our fellow man against us can never compare to the sin that we have committed against a just, righteous, and a holy God. Now, this first servant thought that this second servant owed him something, right? Because he had sinned against him. He had had money that he owed him. But what this first servant failed to consider was the enormity of his sin that he had committed. And when we have been forgiven much, the Scripture says that we are to forgive much. The enormity of our sin drives us to the point to realize that there is nothing that anybody can do to us that is greater than what we have done against a just and a holy and a righteous God. It was the great hymn, A Rock of Ages, that says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill this law demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. We could work the entirety of our lives, cry every single day of every moment, flowing every single day, and none of it would be enough to atone for our guiltiness before God. I love how William Barclay put it. He says, the point is, is that there's nothing that men can do to us that can in any way compare with what we have done to God. And if God has forgiven us the debt we owe to Him, we must forgive our fellow men the debts they owe to us. Nothing that we have to forgive can even faintly or remotely compare with what we have been forgiven. What a powerful lesson Jesus is teaching his disciples and us is that forgiveness has no limits. We are to forgive because we have been forgiven. 
The next thing I want you to notice in this text is that forgiveness bears witness. Now, verses 31 and 34 really kind of are a, a, really just a carry along in the story. We have to be careful when we are uh, reading a parable that Jesus gives us. Not, not every single uh, person in the parable, not every single idea in the parable is meant to teach a specific thing. Oftentimes, Jesus is using characters just to carry the story along, just to help the plot carry itself from place to place in order for this overarching theme to be displayed here. And this is kind of what we find here in these verses, because what happens here is the fellow slaves see what happened, and they bring this word and report uh, back to the master. But I think there's also something to consider here is that our lives are being evaluated. Forgiveness bears witness. The way that we forgive others or choose not to forgive others bears testimony to other people around us about the validity of our faith in Christ. So these fellow slaves saw what had happened. They had seen the master forgive this first servant of this great and enormous debt. But then they saw this servant not forgive his fellow servant of this immeasurably smaller debt. And so they come and they report this to their master. And they say, they said, you, as it says, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the tormentors until he should repay all that was owed him. These fellow slaves realize what has happened. They're heartbroken over it. I think just as we as fellow Christians are, if we were to look out and to see someone who claimed the name of Christ, someone who claimed to be a Christian, who is unwilling to forgive, who lives a life of unforgiveness, it would break our heart. It would cause us to question, as these fellow slaves did, the truthfulness of what had happened in this situation. So they go to the master and, and he calls back in this servant. He calls him, correctly so, a wicked slave because he had received forgiveness beyond all consideration. And the very least that he should have done was to exhibit that tame, same type of forgiveness towards his fellow slave. So it says that the master was moved with anger and handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed. Now we understand, again, the impossibility of this. If he's being handed over to the torture, if he's been handing over to prison, he's never going to be able to repay the debt that he owes. So what we find here is this man is being put into prison indefinitely forever. He's being put into this torturous situation because there's no way he's ever going to be able to repay the debt that he owes. But what a tragic situation we find here is that someone who had experienced such grace and mercy and forgiveness would choose to respond with such hate and anger and unforgiveness. But as we close here, what we find here is this overarching thing. Verse 35 is the summarization of the entirety of what Jesus is teaching us in this whole passage, and that is the fact that forgiveness is necessary. Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The same what? Hand them over 
is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, you will end up like this servant. Who, although he had the opportunity to have his debt forgiven, although he had the opportunity to walk in complete and total forgiveness, because he demonstrated that he did not understand what true forgiveness was and lived his life in such a way that was contrary to it, now that debt falls fully and totally upon him and he does not know the mercy and the grace of his master. Brothers and sisters, there are people who know the truth of the gospel. They've heard the, the, the teachings of Jesus. They've heard what it means to be forgiven. They know what it is. They, the opportunity is there for them. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye who are weary, and I will give you rest. It's there. But instead, they choose to live in a life of unforgiveness. They do not know the truth of what forgiveness is. Jesus is helping us to understand that there will be people who claim to be Christians, who live a life of unforgiveness. And Jesus is being very clear here that if someone claims the name of Jesus Christ, claims to have received forgiveness from God the Father, claims to have of all their sin debt been totally paid by His work upon the cross, and they choose to not forgive others, they're a liar. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you want to receive mercy, you're going to be giving mercy. Later on in Matthew chapter 6, it says, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, what? Then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. Brothers and sisters, these are challenging texts, right? Because nobody, nobody wants to talk about this. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that in a lot of churches, there are people sitting across the aisle from one another who cannot stand one another because they're living a life of unforgiveness. And Jesus says here that those people, if they continue to live that way, will die and go to hell because they have chosen to live a life of unforgiveness. Because Jesus says, if you will not forgive one another, my heavenly Father will not forgive you. Because there's nothing that you and I, and this is hard, because people will will want to bring up all kinds of different things. But brothers and sisters, hear me clearly this morning. There is nothing. And this includes all the grievous and the most heinous sins that are in the world. There's nothing that you and I can do to one another that is greater than what we have done to God in our rebellion and our sin against Him. And if God so lovingly, graciously, freely forgives us of our sin, how could we ever withhold that forgiveness from someone else? Jesus says, with a stern warning here, do not be like this first servant. Because the same thing that happened to him will happen to you. Open your heart to the truth of unlimited forgiveness. Open your heart to the truth of forgiving your brother and sister because God has so graciously and powerfully forgiven you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text. And Lord, if we are honest this morning, 
We fail at this so many times. We struggle with forgiveness. I would not hesitate to say that there is not a person in this room who could say that they can live this out perfectly in their life. But Father, we desire to be that way. We desire to have a heart and an attitude of forgiveness. We desire, Lord, to be awakened every day to the truth of what you have done in our lives so that it affects how we view other people around us. Lord, help us to not be so caught up in our own pride that we forget what you have done in forgiving us. Father, help us to not take things so personally when people sin against us, that, God, we could give those things over to you in order that we might live a life that demonstrates the graciousness and the mercy that you have shown us. Father, may we never be like that first servant who has experienced grace but showed none. But, Lord, may we be like the one who, have, because we have experienced much grace, much forgiveness, much love, that we demonstrate that to everyone around us. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.